Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney and with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney. Um, Eric, I've been uh, a bit of a frenzied spring cleaning mode of late um, and over the last couple of days been focused on tidying up my office, which includes, you know, my occasional super anal ordering of my fight credentials. Um, <laughs> and it got me to thinking a little bit about the very first fight card for which I was credentialed, which was the uh, not a bad first one. Actually, it was the rematch between Oscar De La Hoya and Shane Mosley at the MGM Grand in September 2003. And I realized that that's damn nearly 18 years ago. And I only showed up for boxing to spend six months hanging around fights to write a book, for God's sake. And well, here we are, 18 years later. <laughs> um, and um, you realize, I think, you're getting old when you look at your credentials and you realize, nope, that fight is retired. That fight is retired. That fight is a long time retired. <laughs> that fight is retired. Oh, that fighter made his debut on that card. And he's retired. Um, yeah. and it was a little bit that with this. I, I couldn't find I, the information on everybody who was on the undercard, but the two main eventers are retired. And so, too, was a dreamy young Puerto Rican who was on the pay-per-view <laughs> undercard. But, you know, as I was thinking about that, I saw a tweet that you actually posted. And there's one thing talking about, you know, having a couple of good old fighters who are now retired on a card. And then there's the bout sheet that you dug up that you tweeted about. Holy moly. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was this was the bout sheet from the, the very first uh, card that I attended, credentialed or otherwise. Um, and um, I've talked before about uh, Arturo Gatti, Gabrielis being on the first card I attended and how that fight went a long way toward getting me hooked on boxing and causing me not to be looking for other jobs and trying to get out of boxing after six months or whatever. I thought it, it might be that I would stick around. Um, but yeah, it's pretty crazy to look back at this bout sheet. In addition to Gaddy Ruelas and Luis Galata, uh, which was the, the main event, you had Antonio Tarver, Fernando Vargas, Joel Casamayor, Jesus Chavez, Troy Dorsey, Tarvis Sims making his pro debut, Luan Krasniki, John Molnar, who would go on to fight on the very first Showbox card, and he was making his pro debut here, uh, plus Richard the Alien Grant, famous for getting sucker punched by James Butler a few years wow. later. Um, insane depth of talent on the card, wow. and uh, a good reminder that if you buy a ticket to the fights, you may as well show up early. You know, Don't just stroll in for the TV bouts. You, you never know who or what you're going to see early in the show. Uh, so, so that's one takeaway for me from uh, discovering uh, this old bout sheet. Uh, and the, the other takeaway is packing up a house sucks. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Which I wasn't spring cleaning. I was, I was packing to move and that's how I found this. And I am sick of it already. There's just ah. so much crap to rummage through. And that's with me being married to a thrower outer who doesn't <laughs> like to accumulate stuff. Um, I can't imagine how much this would suck if we were even slightly hoarder-ish. Um, mm. And then, of course, when this work is all done, then we move and it all has to be unpacked. So expect me to remain uh, on edge, a bit cranky perhaps, uh, for, for several more weeks, Kieran. Yeah, and the sad thing is, like, when you move, you're like, that's it. I'm never going to accumulate this much stuff again in my life, uh -huh. right? I'm going to live the ascetic life. It's it's great. And then six months later, it's there's more boxes <laughs> being moved to the basement. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a war zone here at the moment. Uh, just <laughs> box it. We took stuff off of walls, so all the walls are now bare. It just, okay. <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm ready to move, but I'm yeah. not ready to move. I don't know. Indeed. Yeah. yeah, I hear you. Um, let's start boxing. Yes. And we are fortunate that Showtime is really at the center of the boxing universe this week. Uh, we'll be covering all of it on this podcast. Uh, we will have all the usual business, Tweet of the Week, a new top five list assignment, uh, a quick look at some outside of the ring news. But the bulk of the show 
is going to be dedicated to Showtime programming. We'll preview Sunday's pay-per-view event. Yes, right. It's Sunday's pay-per-view event. Don't get caught out. Uh, that is headlined by Floyd Mayweather versus Logan Paul. And if you've been asleep for the last five years, uh, there are cliff notes. We'll get back to you about all of that and uh, what's going on there. Uh, also on Sunday, the four-part documentary, The Kings, premieres on Showtime. Eric and I have seen it. It is fantastic. Uh, and the director, Matt Whitecross, will join us later in the podcast to take us behind the scenes of how they went about telling the tale of Leonard Duran, Hagler, and Hearns. But first, Showtime aired a triple header this past Saturday night. And, well, let's just say we're going to have to debate how to say no need to deny his name for a while longer yes <laughs> indeed um nonito said in the in the pre-fight build-up that he felt young again and he sure looked young and able-bodied as he knocked out previously unbeaten nordin ubali in the fourth round at the once again fairly magical yeah. dignity health sports park in carson california atop saturday's show at age 38 Donaire? Donaire? No Nito. No Nito. Let's actually, let's pause and address this for one second, is that everyone on air calls him Donaire. His dad, I believe, clarified that technically it should should be be Donaire. But since everyone is going Donaire, I'm going to try to stifle the Donaire urge. I'm just going to go Donaire. Here we go. (laughs) So, Donaire. do it. (laughs) <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. Um, so Daener uh, already held the record for oldest ever to win a bantamweight belt. He broke his own record by claiming another belt. Uh, he dropped Ubali with a counter left hook midway through round three, then dropped him much harder with another one that landed at the bell or maybe a little after the bell uh, to end the round and finished Ubali with a three-punch combination, concluding with a left uppercut at 152 of round four. Donaire is now 41-6 and six with 27 KOs, while Ubali slips to 17-1. and one. Donaire was an underdog in the fight. I found him at 2-1 to one several days ago. Kieran, a couple of micro-focused questions. Um, how did Donaire pull off this upset? And was the knockdown at the end of round three clean, in your view? Um, and, and one more macro question. How high does this rank among the Hall of Fame-bound Donaire's greatest performances? Well, to take the most micro question first, I thought that that punch at the end of round three was after the end of round three. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just, but it was. There was a touch of Tomas Molinari's Marlon Starling about it. Um, Mm. But it wasn't Donaire's fault. Um, Maybe Jack Reese would perhaps want to have that uh, back to have been a bit closer, to have stepped in a bit faster. But to Jack's credit, when, when the knockdown happened, he took command of the situation, I thought, very swiftly. Um, but they were in the middle of exchanging, and it just so happened that Donaire was the one who was throwing the punches. It wasn't as if Ubali had heard the bell and dropped his hands or right. turned away or anything. He, he just got caught, and it was at you know three minutes and half a second. Um, and suboptimal situation, given that it was an arguably definitive moment. But it was you know it was fog of war stuff, right? right. It, it it just happens. You you fight until you are stopped from fighting, um, and and that's what happened there. Um, as for how he did it, you know, I I felt like the punch stats tell quite a bit of the story. And we talked about Ubali's punch stats going in, and how you know he has this high output and good power punch accuracy while keeping his opponent's success rate low. But they now flip those stats on their head, really, particularly. Um, you know, Ubali's defense. I mean, going in, Ubali's opponents managed on average to throw just 40 punches around and they landed at an overall accuracy rate of 16%, just 25% success rate in power punches. 
Donaire threw 183 punches in three and a half rounds, and he landed 40% total, mm. 51% of power, much, much, much higher than Ubali's uh, previous opponents had done. And obviously, some of that is skewed a little bit by those flurries that he had. But still, how was he able to do that? Timing. Uh, yeah. He used his experience and his knowledge and his smarts to disrupt Ubali's rhythm. And most importantly, he punched between his punches. He prevented him from getting off with quite the authority and frequency as normal. And, and because Ubali likes to stand in the pocket and make you miss, if he's not able to make you miss, he's just standing in the pocket. And then he's vulnerable. And uh, and that's that's how it proved. I, I thought it was very wasn't just skillful display by Denaira. I thought it was smart. Um, if his hand speed has slipped a little, and you would assume that it has, although it's not very obvious, um, he's making up for it by having these years of experience that enable him to anticipate openings and see the openings when they are there. And he still obviously has the synapses. When fighters get old, quite often they might still see the openings, but are not able to act on them. So Nair is clearly still able to act on those openings. Um, and also added to which, I don't think it's coincidental that this late career resurgence has come when he's moved back to bantamweight, yeah. where he's perhaps more comfortable, where he's able to have a bigger impact on his opponents and they're able to have less on, less on him. Um, and as for the macro question, in my mind, I think it's up there with his KOs of Victor Chinian and Fernando Montiel as one of his greatest victories. I really do, because Ubali could really fight. If you didn't, if you hadn't seen Ubali before and you just saw this fight, you might think he couldn't, or at least not on Donaire's level. But the guy was a legitimately very good boxer. There's a reason, not just Donaire's age, why he was the slight underdog here. Um, and Nonito, after those couple of rounds of adjustment, wiped him out. I think it was an incredibly impressive performance. Um, and afterwards, he said he wants to you know, stay at 118, to unify at 118. And he says he wants a rematch with Nooya and Nooya. Is that what you want to see, uh, that rematch? And you've got, have you got any other thoughts about Nonito's performance and, and what he's got left? So I'm not sure I would have said this before this past Saturday night. But yeah, sign me up for that rematch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not like there's anyone else at 118 more deserving of a shot at Inoue. Uh The only possible fighter you can make a case for over Donaire is John Riel Casimero. Um, I wanted to see Nonito prove that 2019 Inoue fight wasn't his last gasp yeah. before I would endorse a rematch. Clearly it wasn't. Um, so as long as Inoue is going to stay at 118, Donaire is as strong a threat as anyone to, to beat him. Um, this was so damn sensational for Donaire. Uh, the, the first round, it looked like Ubali had an edge in hand speed. Um, so I was a little concerned about Donaire. But by round two, I saw him starting to pick Ubali off with counters. And there was just no wasted motion from Donaire. Exactly. He was so calm, so confident. I was feeling good about betting on him to win just by the end of round two. And about a minute into the third round, I jotted down in my notes, Donaire so dangerous with counter left hook. And bam, seconds later, it landed. Uh, the one that was at the bell or after the bell, I guess it was sort of during the bell since they banged the bell a couple of times. Um, but you're right. It clearly came after the first ding. But mm. as you said, they, they were both still fighting. I'd say it was clean enough. Uh, and and Jack Reese handled it just right. I, I, I think he was right to let Ubali continue. It's interesting mm. that like if there had been any time at all on the clock, 
I think he waves it off there, but he knew Ubali wouldn't take another punch. May as well give him the minute to recover and see what happens. But what a great win for Daener. He still has the power. He still has the timing, as you said. Uh, 118 is obviously the right weight class for him. And I can now envision him still having two or three good years left, um, still fighting meaningful fights past his 40th birthday, maybe. And one last thing uh, I want to say good for him for for taking a moment at the end to note uh, his shirt that said stop Asian hate uh, and to to go more general also by saying at the end, stop the hate, any kind of hate. Uh, Amen. Uh, Pretty pretty simple cause there that I'd like to think anyone could get on board with. Yeah. Um, the middle bout on this three-fight card was also an upset, although only a very, very minor one, uh, an upset that both of us called, uh, with Subriel Matias, uh, who is the slightest of plus 110 underdogs, stopping Batir Jukambayev after eight rounds of yet another thrilling Carson California co-feature. This 140-pound fight was action-packed and closely contested from the beginning, until the Puerto Rican Matias established some control by dropping the Kazakh Southpaw Jukambayev with a right-hand left-hook combo in the fourth. The seventh round was a scorcher, both having their moments, but it was almost all Matias in round eight. He attacked the body, landed tons of punches, and Jukambayev's corner stopped it after the round, with Matias ahead by three points, three points, and one point on the cards. We talked before the fight about Matias wanting to push the pace and throw 90 punches around, and Jukambayev probably wanting to keep him around 60. Uh, he ended up right in the middle at 76 punches thrown per round. Uh, as Abner Mares said on the broadcast, he's a volume puncher with natural power. That's a dangerous combination. Um, and Brian Custer said afterward that Matias reminded him of a 140-pound Jarrett Hurd, whom we'll be talking about in our next segment. Uh, Kieran, your thoughts on those observations by our Showtime colleagues and on Matias going to 17-1 and with 17 KOs by handing Jukambayev, who came in at 18-0, and his first defeat. Man, Matias just must be an absolute nightmare to face. Like, he isn't the fastest puncher or the hardest puncher, and he's certainly not apparently the smartest, the most elusive of boxers, but the whole combination... Uh, to have somebody like that in your face all night, amazing engine on him, uh, just constantly throwing and and doing so with power. It's like Wayne McCulloch with a punch. Right. And um, <laughs> you, you have to be prepared to dig absurdly deep to, to come through that. Um, there are just so many hard punches constantly coming your way. It, it's hard to you know, to time them, to find a way to punch in between. I don't know what the best way is to fight him. Uh, on the one hand, you know, do you want to be, mentioned Marlon Starling, do you want to be that kind of defensive catch and counter type kind of guy? The risk of that is you just end up getting totally outworked and never mm-hmm. get the chance to throw back. I guess ideally you want someone with range and reach who can keep him off balance, who can jab and pop and turn him. But I think that's probably a lot more easily said than done. I don't think Duke can buy a fort poorly by, by any means. Um, I think his hand speed and throwing individual punches are probably greater than Matias. There were a couple of times in the end there, there was, while we're doing analogies, there was a little bit of the Aram Barkley Roberto Duran about a couple of those punches right at the very end that twisted mm-hmm. him round. But even so, he was landing those nice, punches and isolation you can buy of and then Matias would just shrug him off and come right back with a whole flurry again um I'd like to see both guys again I know that yeah. much but um I think you can buy will probably want to take on somebody a little bit less demanding next time now <laughs> yeah <laughs> um the opening bout was definitely the least dramatic unless of course 
you're talking about its impact on our picks competition, as I scored the full five points for nailing the exact round in which Gary Antoine Russell stopped Giovanni Santiago. You know what? Let's actually talk about the picks competition for a while, shall we? Let's do a little score roundup. Uh, you were up 27-26 coming in. Uh, we each got one point for the Matthias win. You got one point to my zero for Donaire. And as I as I said, I'm quite happy about losing. Uh, that was the best zero I, I've ever had. I'm actually very happy about that. But I got five to your two by saying Russell KO6 to your terrible Russell KO5 prediction. Way off. Way off. So I have uh, taken the lead 32 to 31. Um, and reluctantly, we'll, we'll stop talking about the pigs competition for a little while. But back, back to this fight. Um, so Russell just dominated. The whole way against uh, the slower Santiago dropped him to a knee in round four with a counter right hook was was taken past the fourth round for the first time in his career, but not by much. Santiago's corner had seen enough with Russell just dominating in, in rounds five and six. Santiago suffers his second straight loss and falls to 14-2 and one. But unlike his narrow decision defeat to Adrian Bronner, this was not close or controversial. Uh, Russell is now 14-0 with 14 KOs. I saw you tweeted after the fight that. Either Russell is a special fighter, or Bronner is done as a relevant fighter, or both. Um, just how good did Russell look, and how bad was this for what's left of Bronner's reputation as a boxer? I mean, I think you and I and most of our audience knew before this that Bronner had nothing left but his name. Um, this did serve to confirm that. Russell made clear that Santiago is not a world-class fighter. He's basically a, a solid club fighter, and... AB, uh, it doesn't matter how many times you say F. Steve Farhood, uh, <laughs> you, whether you thought you deserved to win that fight narrowly or you should have lost it narrowly or whatever, you couldn't really separate yourself much from Santiago. That's not a great sign. Now, is Russell so stinking good that he made Santiago look worse than he really is? Yeah, quite possibly. Um, I'm deeply impressed with Russell. He has... Yeah skill and speed comparable to Mr. Gary Russell Jr., but he's by far the most aggressive Gary Russell I've seen yet, um, and he has punching power that I haven't seen from any other Gary Russells. He really impressed me in round four. Um, after scoring the knockdown, when he was having trouble landing headshots, he went to Santiago's body instead. Yeah. That was a, a real veteran move there. Uh I didn't want to see it end in round six for picks competition reasons, <laughs> um, but clearly it needed to end after the sixth. Uh, Santiago was completely overwhelmed. His corner did the right thing. And Russell said he wants Adrian Broner next. And I get why, but I'm sorry. That, that looks like a total mismatch to me right now. Yeah, I mean, but as we discussed after the last time we saw Broner, if we see him again, I want to see him as a quote-unquote test slash name for a young up-and-comer so that we get something out of it at right. least. Yeah. Um, but so it's also, a lot of jockeying for position among up-and-coming yeah. fighters for who gets to be that <laughs> guy, I think, right now. Yeah, Exactly. Also, I was very impressed to see that not just was Mr. Gary Russell uh, working his brother's corner, but he was the cut man. And it makes me think, is there anything that he can't do? Well, <laughs> except fight twice a year. Obviously. Right, right. That's the only thing beyond his grasp, yes. Exactly. All right. Uh, those fights were definitely for the serious boxing fans. Uh, we now turn our attention to a card aimed to a large extent at a different sort of audience. On Sunday, June 6th, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, live from Hard Rock Stadium in Miami and airing on Showtime pay-per-view. Hall of Famer Floyd Mayweather, who last fought officially in 2017 against Conor McGregor, returns to face YouTube star Logan Paul in an eight-round exhibition. Uh, other than gotcha hat 
Gate, which didn't even involve Logan Paul, it was his brother Jake, uh, we haven't paid much attention to the fight on this podcast. And we've made no secret why. This is an event for the casual fan, more so than a serious fight for the hardcore fan that mostly listens to this podcast. Uh, that said, are there some elements, Eric, uh, to this that appeal to you or intrigue you, despite you being very much not tar- part of the target audience? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, look, there's a perfectly reasonable chance that athletically this ends up being a farce, right? Um, <laughs> there's a chance that this is just all-time great versus rank amateur and the only question is how far does floyd bend over backward to carry paul uh but there are a couple of things that have me intrigued that that are gonna make me sit forward in my seat at least until i get a good look at the matchup for a minute or two one of those is the size difference um in the ring they're probably going to be something like 30 or 40 pounds apart I've been the size is overrated guy forever, um, but usually we're talking about a difference of five or 10 pounds of natural weight. This is a lot more than that. So I'm curious to see if Paul can hurt Floyd at all. I doubt it. I, I, I doubt he'll catch him clean. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there's some intrigue if he does. Uh, and, and the likely more ap- applicable side of that equation curious to see if Floyd's punches hurt Paul much um, Mm -hmm. just because it's such a smaller guy that's going to be hitting Paul. Um, Then there's the intrigue of Floyd's age and ring rust. He's 44. I know he takes incredible care of himself, but the human body decays eventually. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty close to the same age as Floyd and I have a back condition. I have gimpy knees. (laughs) The fact is if you just tell me to hit a heavy bag for three minutes, there's a chance I'll find a way to injure myself before those three <laughs> minutes are up. This is why I would not bet on Floyd in, in this fight if he's like a 20 to one favorite or whatever he is um, to lay huge money to win a little. I wouldn't do it because of the chance of injury. You know, one wrong step and a knee gives out or what have you. Um, but there's a there's a flip side. It's not all this sort of negative curiosity, like what could go wrong for Floyd here. It's also a chance to see if 44 year old Floyd can still sort of fight like Floyd Mayweather. Uh, That's part of why people tuned in to see Mike Tyson last year. And he delivered, more or less, um, a chance to see Floyd show off his moves one more time. There's some interest there on my part. Um, And then the big selling point for me, there's a strong chance Floyd totally clowns Logan Paul and kicks his ass from bell to bell and dishes out some punishment to a cocky internet celebrity. (laughs) And, you know, up to a point, of brutality there's some real satisfaction in watching that <laughs> so look there's a lot that i don't like about this fight and i don't need to spell it all out it's pretty obvious i don't think it paints the sport we love in a positive light overall uh but i'd be lying if i said i'm not intrigued to see how floyd looks given some of the physical disadvantages he'll be looking to overcome mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um now a- as it is an exhibition we won't make official picks for that fight. And same with one of the undercard fights, the pro debut of former NFL wide receiver Chad Ochocinco, who is 43 years old and faces 0-3 Brian Maxwell. That might interest some of the folks tuning in for Mayweather versus Paul, but we don't need to pick a winner. However, the other two undercard fights figure to be more in our wheelhouse. Um, One of them we can't preview, make picks for, uh, as a Jean-Pascal Badu-Jack rematch is off. Uh, Pascal failed a PED test, so Jack is looking for a new opponent as of this recording. But we can talk about the other fight. Uh, The first fight in 17 months for former 154-pound title holder Jared Hurd. He's now 30 years 
old, has a record of 24 and 1, 16 KOs, has had one win since his upset loss to Julian Williams, and he's fighting at middleweight on Sunday against Luis Arias, 18, 2 and 1, with nine KOs. Has never been stopped, uh, but after an 18-0 start to his career, Arias is winless in his last three. A lopsided loss to Daniel Jacobs, a split draw against Gabriel Rosado, and a loss in Belfast to Luke Keeler. Uh, Heard appearing recently on our friend Brian Custer's Last Stand podcast, and maybe this is why uh, Custer had Heard on the brain Saturday night, uh, but Heard (laughs) said on that podcast that he blew up to 217 pounds during the pandemic. That's part of why he's fighting at 160 instead of 154. But he did say he intends to return to 154, where he wants a rematch with Julian Williams and a shot at Jermel Charlo. And he says he wants to be the first to stop Arias. So what do you think, Kieran? Can he become the first to stop Arias? Give me your thoughts on the matchup and your official pick for the fight. He can become the first to stop Arias, but I don't know that he will. Uh, Under different circumstances, I might back him too. Um, you know, as Danny Jacobs said to Arias at the press conference before their fight, he just looked at him and just said, levels. Right. There are levels <laughs> in this game. Um, and I think Hurd is probably several above Arias. Uh, Arias talks an exceptionally good game. Um, but when the rubber hit the road, he really didn't do anything to Jacobs of any great consequence. Uh, that said, I do expect him to have the potential to at least win a couple rounds against Hurd simply because of the inactivity issue. Uh, like you said, this is Starrett's first fight in 17 months. It's also only his second in 25 months and his third since the end of 2018. Um, and you mentioned his weight as well. And at the time of his loss to J-Rock, it looked as if Hurd just might be too big to make 154. Right. And, and as you mentioned, you know, during the pandemic, he soared up in weight. All of this takes its toll. I wouldn't be surprised if Hurd not only finds his timing is off at at times especially early but also if his body just feels a bit strange to him in there you know he's fighting at a weight he hasn't been before after coming down from a weight he probably hasn't been at before um and arias is fast so it's entirely possible that early on he might be picking off herd a little bit but i do expect her to get into his range start feeling more comfortable start timing arias a bit more easy and also to be able to stop bullying him I think I think his punches should start sapping Aris's speed and strength. I, I would like to see Hurd go to the body as he gets going uh, to slow Arias down. Uh, maybe after some tricky early rounds, I would expect him to start dominating the middle rounds. He might tire at the end and have, you know, maybe Arias will close the gap. But I think the end result might be a bit closer than one would expect, given their respective abilities and experience levels. But we're at the tail end, or at least in this country, we're at the tail end of a pandemic that's shaken everything up. And we're still seeing the final ripple effects in that respect. I think the relative closeness of this result will be one of those final ripple effects. But Mm. I do expect Hurge to emerge victorious by unanimous decision. I think it'll probably be something along the range of, say, oh, a 96-94 type win over 10 rounds, something to that effect, because I think Arias might just have the opportunity to close it up a little bit at the end there. Under different circumstances, I'd expect a wider win for her, but I think that's probably what he'll get. And he'll feel okay getting away with that, I think. Right. All right. Well, uh, good news for you, Kieran. Uh, You're ahead by one point now. You will remain ahead by one point no matter what (laughs) happens here. Um, I do have some concerns about Hurd in terms of all the hard fights he's been in, the layoff, the weight loss. But despite all those, he still has to be the pick here. Uh, The question is not really whether he wins. It's whether he does become the first to stop Arias. I mean, he's been in with some world-class opposition, never been stopped. That would be a nice accomplishment for Hurd. But given my various concerns about him, 
given that it's only a 10 rounder like you, I lean toward this one going to the cards. Um, and like you, I could see Arius having some moments along the way since herd has never been hard to find. Um, I'm going to say it's a little more lopsided than the scores you presented. I'm thinking something like eight rounds to two, something like that, but certainly not a shutout. I think Arius will have moments. Maybe Hurd even drops him a time or two to make it even wider on the cards, but ultimately our picks are the same. We're both going with Jared Hurd by unanimous decision. And uh, it's time now for our tweet of the week. Uh, my turn to pick it, uh, and it will lead nicely into our next segment in which we will be discussing, among other things, Devin Haney's fight Saturday night against Jorge Linares. The tweet is from at jspecdriver. Uh, not sure who he is or what his real name is, but his avatar is a picture of a big, adorable pit bull. Uh, so he's A-OK with me. Um, he tweeted simply, Devin Haney, round 12, and then hashtag Haney Linares, hashtag boxing. And that last hashtag is how I found the tweet. Uh, sometimes when I don't have a great pick yet for tweet of the week, I just search the okay. boxing hashtag and that's how I found this. So it said Devin Haney round 12. And then it was a gif. Uh, you know that clip from a few years ago that went viral of two little boys. Uh, they look probably two years old. Uh, it's a black boy and a white boy, although the race isn't relevant here, but it helped the clip go viral at the time, I think. Anyway, it's these two little boys seeing each other from half a block away, and they run toward each other and give each other a big, adorable hug. Do you, do you know that clip? <laughs> yeah, I do. Okay, so it was a gif of that <laughs> suggesting Devin Haney spent the 12th round just coming in for as many hugs as he could get. Uh, certainly, that's how he spent portions of the 12th round. Uh, not sure sure how much you want to say without using up too much of your fight analysis <laughs> that you have planned for about 30 seconds from now so you can comment you can pass you can talk about hugs or racial harmony say what you want but that's the tweet of the week yeah i think safe to say that it does lead very well into the next segment and it sort of um helps accentuate a point or two that i was planning on making about devin haney in the aftermath of that fight Okay. At so, least in terms of public perception of Dave, Devin Haney and where that's headed. Right. Okay. So let's get right to that then with the next segment. Uh, this is a bit of a hodgepodge, this segment. We have uh, one fight to preview and a little bit of outside the ring news to cover. But let, let's start with a quick conversation about that Haney-Lenares fight. Uh, this was in Las Vegas atop a DAZN card on Saturday night. Undefeated lightweight Haney taking his biggest step up yet against the veteran Lenares. And for the first 9.9999 rounds. It was a fairly formulaic Haney performance. He was boxing well, landing plenty of clean shots, fighting an offensive-minded fight, but never totally opening up and never really hurting Linares, somewhat to my surprise. But then, just before the bell to end round 10, Linares buckled Haney's knees with a counter shot, and Haney wobbled back to his corner. He was very lucky the punch hadn't come a few seconds mm. earlier, and he fought most of the last two rounds to survive, and did so winning by scores of 116-112 twice and 115-113. Kieran, uh, I'm getting concerned that Devin Haney is turning into the Dimitri Bivol of this division. Mm. Um, there's obviously talent there, but he just doesn't bring the excitement. And now we see him having a closer shave than expected. What do you think? Does his stock go either up or down with this win? Uh and could we end up with it being the three princes? Uh, and mm. Haney just doesn't develop the box office appeal to get fights with those guys and be the fourth prince. I like the Bivol analogy a lot, actually, mm. um, especially as we were talking about him just recently. Yeah, look, as you said, like Bivol, Haney is clearly talented and he does have moments against the right opponent where he can absolutely look devastating. But he has only scored stoppages 
against two of his last seven opponents. And he's more to the point he's being taken the distance by foes he really shouldn't be being taken the distance by. And I'm not necessarily putting Linares in that category because, you know, he's, he's still a quality fighter. But the fact is that Haney just isn't really separating himself from his opponents in the way that a truly top caliber fighter or one with aspirations of being a truly top caliber fighter should be doing. He mm. just doesn't have... A performance. Look, if we're talking about the other guys, somebody wants to say, well, what, what should I watch to get a sense of how good this Javante Davis guy is? And that's not a problem. He just, I mean, there are plenty of opportunities, right. but you, you just show him the Leo Santa Cruz fight. Um, Ryan Garcia, maybe you show him the Luke Campbell fight and say, look, he can recover from adversity and, and look really impressive. I mean, just about every single one of Teofimo Lopez's fights like goes into that category. There isn't one for Devin Haney. Um, and, you know, we're going to be talking about the Four Kings uh, later on. And, yeah, you, you mentioned the, the, the whole Four Princes thing. He's in danger of becoming not just like the number four of the Four Princes, but Wilfred Benitez. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, in that very good boxer, danger to any one of the others in the group, able to pull off a win against them in the right circumstances, but also in danger of being overshadowed by those others' achievements. And were they to get together at any point, possibly being overwhelmed by extra gears that the others seem to have, that he just seems reluctant to engage if, if he even has them at times. All of that said, you know, Linares is a solid win still, uh, even if it was, a, were a little, it was a little more uncomfortable at times than he wanted. He does remain a threat, but he does kind of need now that big opportunity, I think, uh, to prove that he is on that equal footing because I think we talked before about how Devin Haney might be sort of losing a little bit of ground on them, maybe after the Uriokas Gamboa fight. And I think that's happening more and more now. Not to say that he's not a very good fighter. I think he is, but he's not maybe showing that he's as good a fighter at the moment as we want him to be, particularly given these other names we've been talking about in connection with him. Yeah. Uh, to take the four Kings, four princes uh, comparison, a step or three farther than anyone probably uh, cares for us to. Um, it, it occurs to me that maybe, you know, Roberto Duran was kind of a half generation removed mm. from the other three. Yep. Maybe Lomachenko is the fourth prince, uh, right. even though he's kind of a half generation removed from these guys. Maybe he keeps fighting them beyond just having the one fight with, with Lopez. And he's the fourth prince. And uh, and Haney is that Benitez guy who we who we don't group in with the others. Mm, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, the uh, one other notable fight on tap for this coming weekend, the day before Mayweather Paul, uh, British heavyweight Daniel Dubois fights for the first time since his upset loss to Joe Joyce six months ago, taking on Romanian veteran Bogdan Dinu, who has 20 wins against opposition you've never heard of, but is 0-2 when stepping up, having been stopped by both Jarrell, Big Baby Miller, and Kubrat Pulev. Uh, Dubois is just 23 years old. He's got plenty of time to rebuild himself, clearly. What are you looking to see from him in this comeback fight? And does Dinu strike you as the right sort of opponent to return against? Uh, yes, to the latter question. Dinu is precisely what they want. Uh, a nice record, 20-2, and two, so you can think he's credible, but in reality, he's cannon fodder for Dubois and probably can't win, even if Dubois is mentally or physically not right. I mean, sometimes we've seen the comeback get well fight go wrong. Uh, Michael Grant against Jamil McLean springs right to mind, but... I'm not too concerned here. Dubois was right in that fight against Joe Joyce, but he had orbital fractures and retinal bleeding. Um, I wouldn't expect him to suddenly be chinny or gun shy. That doesn't seem to be who he is. Um, 
this should be easy work. What I'm looking to see is how quickly he can take care of business. Will he get Tinu out of there inside like three rounds faster than Pulev or Miller did? Mm-hmm. This is not a case where he wants rounds and experience. First fight back, I think he wants a KO1 or KO2 if he can yeah. get it, and probably he can. KO2 is my best guess here. Um, it's been a, a light news week, just three noteworthy topics to address, nothing worth separating out as the news main event. Uh, one item we mentioned earlier in the show but didn't explore, Jean Pascal failing his VADA test. Uh, to elaborate, he tested positive for three different banned substances, and Badu Jack noted in a tweet that he, quote, suspected he was dirty when they fought in 2019. Pascal works with the controversial strength and conditioning coach Memo Heredia, He's 38 years old, huge question marks now clouding whatever remains of his fighting career, though not surprisingly, he claimed he didn't knowingly take anything illegal. In sad news, former 154-pound title holder Keith Mullings died over the weekend at just 53 years of age. No cause of death reported as of this recording. Mullings was best known for winning the title in a massive upset over Terry Norris in 1997. I was lucky enough to be ringside for that Mm. excellent fight card in Atlantic City. He also fought Raul Marquez, David Reed, Winky Wright, and Javier Castillejo. And the former Marine finished with a pro record of 16-8-1. And lastly, 39-year-old Gennady Golovkin reportedly has a two-fight plan in the works for the rest of 2021, a tune-up fight against an opponent yet to be determined in the next few months, followed by a December 28th fight in Japan against Ryota Murata. Uh, Triple G versus Murata is worth good money in Japan, but Kieran, are you feeling the same sort of emptiness I am that Golovkin seems to be playing out the string excluded from the big-time middleweight championship fights, despite still not having suffered a conclusive defeat in the <laughs> ring. Um, and, and any thoughts on the Pascal situation or any comments on the late Keith Mullings? Very sad news about Keith Mullings. Um, 53 is far too young, says the 53-year-old. Um, <laughs> uh, he was never the best fighter in the division or the most skilled or the fastest, but he may have been the toughest out mm. in, in a division that at the time, as you can tell just by looking at the names that you read out there of his opposition, it, that was stacked with talent. That was a good time to be a good junior middleweight um and he was a real pros pro and i think that the guys who were in with him knew that they'd been in with him raul paid tribute to him you know in a couple of social media posts uh whatever happened to take him from us so young uh may he rest in peace um as for pascal to his credit he didn't reach for the the test was flawed slash it was tainted meat Flash, there was something in my supplements excuse. Uh, He put out a statement that, while not acknowledging complicity, didn't dispute the findings. Uh, I am shocked and embarrassed, he wrote. I would never voluntarily take illegal substances. I've always fought for a clean sport, will continue to do so. I'm one of the first modern boxers to insist on random testing, and I've passed countless tests during my 13 years at the highest levels of boxing. I want to assure all my fans this is an isolated incident, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to prove it. My strength and conditioning coach was fired last night. Hmm. I realize that no matter what I say, this is a stain on my name, and I'm determined to wash it out. So he's throwing Heredia under the bus here, yes. which is, you know, fair enough. Um, it's natural that that's where the focus would go. He, he's worked with him for a while uh, since late 2013, early 2014. I think the of his fight with Lucien Boutet was the first time they worked together. He hasn't, to my knowledge, popped dirty since then. Uh, that doesn't mean he's been clean all that time. It doesn't mean he's been dirty either. But if you're a boxer and you hook up with Memo Heredia, you're asking for trouble because 
no one's really going to believe you if you do a failure test, even if it is an accident or even if it is a contaminated supplement or something. You go into that rightly or wrongly with a supposition that you're up to something. There are other strength and conditioning coaches out there, lots of them. And and why, again, I'm not saying that this is Heredia's fault or... Uh, you know, that, or if you're, you're working with them, then, then you are dirty. But there's just a supposition there. And I, I just don't know what he brings to the table that other strength and conditioning coaches don't. Uh, that makes him worth that, that's, you know, uh, association. Um, either way, it's not good for Pascal. Like, and you touched on the reasons why. Um, you know, he'll presumably be, you know, stripped of, uh, of his alphabet belt. He'll, he'll struggle at his age. And with this baggage... Um, especially if, you know, as Badu Jack alluded to, others have suspected he's been dirty all this time. He'll struggle now to get fights at the top level. It doesn't mean his career's over by any means, but the prospect of him fighting for a world title again seems pretty remote um, right now. Um, yeah, as for Golovkin, I think you've nailed it. I think you've nailed very much feeling about him. Uh, I, I think it's sad, actually. Um, Golovkin's 41-1-1. Could easily be 43 and 0. Mm -hmm. you, you tweak a couple of rounds of those two fights with with Canelo, and he's 43 and 0, which means he could be 43 and 0, including 2 and 0 against the man who's now the consensus pound <laughs> for pound number one in the world. Um, for several years, he's one of the most destructive and exciting forces in boxing, and yet he's even saying he's on the outside looking in is overstating where he's at at the moment. I think um, part of that is that there is a sense that he is in now terminal decline. Yeah, he did struggle to that controversial win against Sergei Derevyanchenko. And even as he won comfortably against Kirill Zeramata, he looked off. Um, I think he'd be an underdog against Jamal Charlo right now, probably a big one. Um, and even against Ryota Murata, who's a tall guy with a big right hand, you wouldn't make him an overwhelming favorite, not now. Um, but I think the big issue for him is that for the last couple of years where he was you know, at his peak... The big talk was of the Canelo Alvarez fight. That happened. They were two fantastic fights, but officially, at least, he didn't get the nod. And I think the perception now is, A, that there's little need for a trilogy fight because of that aforementioned perceived decline. And his chances of getting one remote, because Canelo hates him. <laughs> right. And doesn't want to give him another opportunity because he's also fully aware he went through hell on the two occasions he did face him. So I think if we ever do get a Canelo Golovkin 3, It'll be when Canelo is completely convinced that he can just go in there and finish him off and dominate him. And that will be an unfortunate end as well. It's, it is unfortunate, man. Golovkin shook nobody. He was anxious to fight everybody when he was at the top. Nobody wanted to fight him. And, it, and it's sad to see a career, not Peter out, but such a great career and of a guy who always kept so busy, now fighting just occasionally um, against this kind of opposition. It, it's tough, but it, it's just another sign of what an unforgiving and brutal business this sport is. And when you're on the top, everybody loves you. And when you're not, good luck finding friends. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Well, whatever happens from here, Golovkin is going to go down as one of the middleweight greats of his era. But his era will not go down as a golden age, at least not on par 
with the era that preceded him by three decades. The era of Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran, and Thomas Hearns is best known as the Four Kings. And this Sunday, June 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, Showtime premieres the four-part docuseries, The Kings, directed by Matt Whitecross, who will be joining us on the podcast in just a moment. Um, I've seen all four hours, so has Kieran. Starting next week, we'll be recording extra mini podcasts each week for four weeks, taking a closer look at each of the four episodes. Uh, But for now, a broader overview. Call me a shameless Showtime shill if you want, uh, but you just have to believe me. I'm being completely honest here. I loved this, uh, and and I intend to try to convince my wife and kids to watch. I think they'll love it, too. I don't think this is just for boxing hardcores by any means. I plan to mention this to Matt, but... The Kings felt to me like it could be boxing's version of The Last Dance. Uh, I certainly don't expect that it'll be in the zeitgeist in the same way, because that aired on ESPN, not premium pay cable, and that aired at a time when the world was stuck indoors and had almost no live sports to watch. But I think in terms of quality, in terms of tapping into the not-too-distant past, an era my generation is nostalgic for and younger (laughs) generations will be interested to learn about, And just in terms of a sports story with numerous arcs to it, it has that sort of appeal that The Last Dance had. There's some stuff from the 70s in there and some stuff from the 90s in there, but this is mostly the story of the 1980s, both in boxing and in the wider political and social sphere. And I had a great time reliving (laughs) these fights and these rivalries. I'll save most of my specific thoughts for those mini pods we have coming up. But Kieran, what are your broader thoughts on the series? Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, I was enthusiastic about the idea of a documentary series on these four fighters, but if the concept was was strong, I, I, the execution is stronger. I think mm-hmm. the the archival research is outstanding. I think there's just some fantastic footage, um, some real first rate interview excerpts. Um, I feel that the series did an excellent job as well of conveying the different personalities involved uh, among the four main fighters and their contrasting fates and attitude. It's full of pathos, I think. And I I think it's to the immense credit of everybody involved that I haven't known the result of these fights for 30 or 40 years. And I still had goosebumps (laughs) as they built up to the the major one. Um, I wasn't sure at first how involving the, the the broader political and social issues of the time would work and it, maybe it takes a little bit of time for the relevance of that to be fully clear but it, i think it does work it works very well especially in my mind when it comes to looking at at thomas Hearns and roberto duran in the context of what's happening in this time to detroit and panama i think that's mm. super super effective um all four boxes feel to me as if they're given equal time, but there's no question of who the principal antagonist is, and there's no surprise that it's Ray Leonard. If these the, the other three united on anything is that they hate Ray. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I like about the show is I think it's very honest and unsparing. It's very much a warts and all assessment of all the main characters, and, and the men themselves are actually among their harshest critics, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it really is a fantastic effort. So um, let's join right now uh the series director matt whitecross uh matt congratulations on an absolutely wonderful piece of work um and thanks so much for joining us on the showtime boxing podcast it's such a pleasure thanks for having me 
So, Kieran uh, just uh, kissed kissed your ass a little bit there in, in the intro. I'm going to come right out of the gate swinging with additional ass kissing. Um, I thought the docu series was outstanding, and um, I'm really excited for a wider audience to see it. Um, I kind of felt like I was watching boxing's version of The Last Dance, the the Michael Jordan documentary, just without the benefit of dropping early in a pandemic when when everyone was desperate for something sports related to watch. But the, the big achievement here, Matt, to my eyes, is how you managed to weave together these four stories into one coherent, well-paced narrative. How challenging was that part of it to pull off? How, how much was your head spinning trying to figure out the, the segues and the sequencing? Yeah, it was tricky. It was tricky. I mean, the project from the beginning, it was conceived as being the story, obviously, of these four guys. But then we wanted to try and extrapolate from that and see the bigger picture and try and analyze maybe what they what they said about the society they lived in, what they said about the culture they lived in, what they said about us as human beings, what they said about America. So that was that was a tricky proposition. And um, at certain points, it did feel like playing kind of 7D chess or something, where you're trying to move all the different strands around and not go crazy. Um, I mean, I think it was, luckily it was so, the, the atmosphere and the stories are so intoxicating that it never felt like work. It was great fun and then a real privilege, real honor to get to step into that world for a little bit as an outsider. But um, yeah, no, it was, it was a little bit tricky. I mean, the good thing from my perspective, so we were working with uh, James Gay-Reese and Paul Martin who had made uh, Maradona and had previously made Senna and, and Damey. And so they, the way they work is a little bit different to how I've worked in the past they very much prioritize the research period at the beginning. They factor mm. in five to six months before you even start working with the team. We had a little bit less on this one just because at a certain point I had so much information in my head that it was leaking out my ears and I started <laughs> to go crazy. So I, and I have an editing background, so I started working on it just by myself as, as an editor. But yeah, they, they factored in a long, a long time for me just to try and familiarize myself with that time, with the world, start speaking to some of the people who actually appeared as contributors in the show in the end mm. and just to try and get my wrap my head around what was going on so the first time ever i've had a chance to do this uh, i sat down and kind of wrote it almost like a, a kind of victorian novel going okay we have this character coming in and then this mm -hmm. is what happens in episode one and trying to connect all the different strands i had a, a great research team with me and an archive team that was start, starting up so we could try and do it together we had it looked like the uh, looked like Kevin Spacey's flat in Seven. It was like every single conceivable surface had scribbling notes, and we were like, take this strand, and then this happens, and this happens. I mean, the amazing thing for me is maybe it's just the way that our minds work, but you know there is a symmetry to certain lives. You can kind of create stories. So they had nine fights together. We had three episodes originally, so it's okay. So three, three in each one, and then certain things politically and in society just seem to land at just the right moment. And there's a beautiful, almost like a kind of uh, epic Greek tragic element to some of their lives, you know, so the, we had plenty of cliffhangers for TV and it was just a question of figuring out which archive we had that could to suit those bits and, and who was going to tell us those stories. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a complicated one, but very, very rewarding. Uh, about halfway through, we did have a bit of soul searching and I think, we had some execs who came in, uh, not from the Showtime side, they were uh, very supportive, but on the British side, just saying, do you need the political strand? Mm. And I was like, yeah, I think we've got to have it in there. And I was like, okay, fine, well, look, we'll just leave you alone, but you know, it's not working yet. And I think they were right. And so we had to go in and, and try harder. But yeah, from the very, very beginning, when we started speaking to Vinny and Stephen at Showtime, they were, they were kind of what you want as you like your dream uh, financiers, broadcasters, execs, because they just said, look, we trust you guys. 
we like this take on it. We understand that you're not just doing the straightforward boxing version of this, uh, which you could easily do and would be very entertaining, but you're trying to tell the bigger story. That's great. You go, guys go off and do that. We're around for feedback when you need us. And then, and then they came over and they had a, had a look and we had an episode one, which was about two hours long at that stage. And, and originally we were thinking of doing three episodes. So they, they kind of went, well, look, the bits that we love are all the backstory. We love all this, these, you know, when you start analyzing what was happening in terms of, uh, you know, the racial divisions in America in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And we love all the background, the boxing background where you get into the promoters and the, and the coaches and the, the trainers. How are you going to keep all that when you start cutting it down to length? And I had to be honest, I was like, well, I don't know that we can preserve all of it. We'll try and do what we can. And normally at that stage, the financial says, well, good luck. We'll see you, see you at the, the, the premiere. And they said, OK, well, we obviously need to give you more screen time and more money. I don't know. I don't know if that's ever happened before in the history of humanity <laughs> or broadcasting. But anyway, they did it for us, which was which was an amazing sign of their faith in in us and the project. And it was somewhere in that conversation that it switched from three two-hour episodes to four one-hour episodes. It was somewhere in there that you sort of reconfigured it. Yeah, we were originally going to have three one-hours, and it went to, oh, okay. to, to four one-hours, which was which was amazing. Okay. I mean, we, so instantly it was like, okay, great. Well, then. This is this might be manageable, okay. but then, like you said, we we went from the structure, which had been very carefully written down and, and crafted from the very beginning, suddenly flew out the window. All my cliffhangers right. were in the wrong place. <laughs> suddenly, the fights were all in the wrong place, you know. And I didn't really know how to do it. And then Fiona, who was one of the producers, she she just said, "Well, you know, I feel like if episode one is is really Leonard's." episode even though you're introducing all four mm. it's really about this hero who takes over from Ali if each each um episode has a theme and that was the only way to try and get our heads around it and so that's really Leonard's episode where we see the end of the Ali era and now we're going into this new era which looks like it's going to be the Leonard era and then rather than having both Leonard Duran fights why don't you finish it on the cliffhanger where you see the heroes defeated mm. isn't that exciting you're definitely going to tune in next week so I was like, right. okay that, that was the only way to square it but it still involved quite a lot of soul searching and, and mm. shifting bits mm. around. So, you know, you're talking about how, uh, you know, you put that series, you put everything, all these stories in that broader context, um, you know, political, socioeconomic kind of context. Do I infer correctly that when you sat down to do it, it that was always the goal? Or did you originally think, hey, let's do a great series about these four guys. And as you were looking at it, think, you know, what would make it even better is, is to put it into this context. No, it was very much the the idea to, from the beginning to, to do okay. the political and the social backdrop. And that that's what really enticed me because, you know, I like a lot of people. I'm a kind of casual boxing fan. Like I watch the big fights. I know the big players in the history of boxing, like like everyone on the planet, including you know my, my mother. But I, on the other hand, when it came to the Four Kings, I kind of I kind of knew them and I could put faces to names, but I didn't know that much about the story. I probably knew a little bit more about Leonard than I did about the others. Mm -hmm. So I was coming to it completely cold. And when James and Paul, the producers contacted me originally, they said, do you, they, they were very keen for, for me to do it. And I said, like, I don't know if you've got the right person because mm -hmm. clearly these guys are amazing. Clearly it was a very important era in boxing, but I, I'm probably not the right person to tell it. I don't know that time. And they were like, no, that's great. We, we like the idea of an outsider coming in to do it. Um, and particularly, I'd made a lot of political documentaries in my in the early part of my career, 
and they said we we very much see this as a kind of as, as that's the backdrop the backdrop gotcha. is is important and so i i didn't know whether they were just doing that to entice me and they would bin that as soon as we got into the edit suite but they've never stuck to their guns <laughs> another decision that you made was to not show the talking heads that you were using it was only audio is that a particular technique of yours or was there something very specific about the way that this came together that led you to that decision well it's funny it's something that i've slightly evolved and come around to in, in the in the work that i've done so i when I started out, there's something about talking heads that sometimes bothers me. Like it can be very mm. good if you want to connect with someone uh, and you want to, and they're, they're being very emotional, for example. Obviously mm. it's like, it's nice to see the person having that emotion, but otherwise it, I can sometimes find it quite intrusive because immediately it throws me out of the immediacy of right. the, the archive. Right. And it often, it often begs more questions than it answers in the sense you're like, well, where is this strange person in like in a weird warehouse right. or in a <laughs> hotel room or whatever. And so, so what I do, and, and it connected also to something else that I'd, when I started off uh, doing documentaries a while ago, because mostly I've done dramas, but on the first couple of documentaries I did, we actually factored in some time just to, to get to know the people that we were, we were working with. And so I, I did a film with Michael Winterbottom called The Road to Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. And we, I lived with the guys there for almost a month doing interviews with them every morning. And when I set the camera up, I quickly discovered they completely clammed up and they became self-conscious ah. and worried about their appearance. And when I switched the camera off and just did it on a on an audio uh, recorder, they were they were fine and they were forgotten about it almost instantly. So what I've done on every project since then is done the initial interviews on audio and then seeing whether we need the talking heads. And sometimes okay. when there's no archive, it can it can you, or you, if you really want to connect with someone emotionally, it's worth it. But then. And then when we, we did a film about the band Oasis, Supersonic, and I think originally Asif Kapadi was, was lined up to do that. And in the end, he ended up, uh, it was his company who did it the, the, with James. And he has a style of doing that in his, in his films. And I remember when we met Noel Gallagher uh, from the band, he said, like, I just don't want this to feel like some nostalgia fest of like kind of gray haired rockers sitting in armchairs talking about the good days. And so I, so I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. That kind of ties into this style. I, you know, then let's, if the archive can support it, let's just stay in the moment. And, and gotcha. we've kind of stuck with that ever since. Gotcha. Mm. All right. And, and speaking of uh, the, those interviews that you did for this, um, I didn't even realize this while watching it because uh, you got enough archival audio to, to cover this up, but you apparently couldn't get uh, Leonard or, or Hagler to participate um, what can you tell us about the, the efforts to get them and, and why it didn't happen with those two? Well, it's, it's complicated when you're making documentaries because it's very, it's a huge imposition to, and a, a huge presumption to say that, you know, here I am uh, as an outsider, I'm going to tell the story of your life, right? So I never, I never assume that people are going to want to collaborate. Uh, and certainly when I've been dealing with musicians in the past, it's a whole romance that has to go on and there's, the, the, the bigger the bands, for example, the bigger the entourage, the bigger the layers. You know, I've, I've worked with Rolling Stones in the, in the past and it's like dealing with Apple or something like that. You know, they have <laughs> 700 people you have to speak to before you get <laughs> right. to Mick, um, which is just the way I guess those, those things have to, have to evolve, you know, it becomes an organization. And I think boxes are the same, right? And the, and, and the music, if, if uh, having worked in film most of my life and then stepping into the music world, which I thought was very dysfunctional, uh, boxing and sport is a whole new level. <laughs> so it's complicated <laughs> and you never know someone's like i'm you're in to a certain boxer yeah. and then it turns out that they're not and there's all yeah. that kind of thing and luckily we had the time to do that so um we were it was great that we connected with tommy through jackie through jackie callan 
and then we connected with Roberto, I think partly through Showtime and then through through his family. So that was amazing. And again, I didn't know for a fact that we were definitely going to get them. And then the next step, so there was a, we were, we were given different advice by everyone. And you guys probably know this world much better than I do. But it was, everyone was like, if you approach the Ray before you approach Marvin, then oh, the yeah. other one will get a noise. <laughs> you have to do it in the right order. Then they said, then Marvin's in Italy. He was represented uh, by, you know, someone who isn't in the entertainment business. So there's a, it's, a, it's complicated to try and explain what we're doing. And also I think there's, there is that factor that people, they, they know it's like, it's their life. And, and maybe they get one chance to tell it, tell the story or a couple of times. It's got to be right. So, so that was tricky, but I felt like we were getting along quite well with, with Marvin uh, and his representative. So like that was like, it looked like we were going to meet up. And in the meantime, we were talking to, to through other people to raise, raise uh, guys. And so as far as I understood, just before COVID hit, we, I was, I was booked to go and meet Ray. And, hmm. uh, but I don't know, it may turn out that he never even knew this, but I was, I assumed <laughs> I was going over to, to interview him and then COVID hit. And then it was like, okay, well, look, there's no rush. We have plenty of archive. We're not waiting on it. I just feel like for selfish reasons, I want to go over and interview him, you know, anyway, something else might come out of it. Luckily for, for us, he's been very, very open and honest throughout his life, but particularly after his autobiography came out, he's talked about everything, the highs and the lows. And with, with Marvin, I really wanted to see him again. We had quite a lot of footage of him, but I, I wanted to go and do it myself. So I felt like it's okay. Well, time's on our side, but not, no one's rushing us to deliver this. And then I think we heard back from Ray's people saying, oh, actually, he wants to go and do his own thing now. And it was disappointing. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, well, I, I don't think it's going to affect what we're doing massively. It's a, it's a shame. You know, I would love to go and, and meet him. I, I admire him massively. And with Marvin, I was still holding out. And I thought, oh, yeah, no, maybe we can still make this happen. And I, I felt like, well, maybe what we do is we finish it and then we go and present it to him and maybe try the same thing with Ray. Um, and, then, and then COVID happened. And then as we were finishing it, uh, we heard the ter like terrible sad news of, of his passing. So I, you know, it's a, it's a, it's incredibly sad, and and yeah, I regret it that we never we mm. never got to meet him, and then he never got to see it. You know, because I really hope okay. we did him justice. I hope he would have yeah. seen it and 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 felt like we'd, it was a testament, a tribute to what he achieved in his life. Right. Well, if 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 I know Marvin, I, th I think he would he would have liked it, but he would have probably complained that uh, you presented the possibility that it was reasonable to score the the, the Leonard fight for Leonard he, he, he would have preferred a presentation where that was a clear Hagler win but um what one other question about those interviews with the four kings a kind of a sensitive subject alert here on this one but um audio of Tommy puts any documentary filmmaker in a bit of a tough spot was there any hesitance to use subtitles did you just find that you kind of had no choice with him yeah, it's tricky. It is really tricky because I didn't want to be patronizing about it. It's like when I, it's funny because young Tommy has a drool that is, and he's just, and a shyness to him that is sometimes he is a little bit hard to understand as well if you're not listening properly. If you're, it's like you're a casual viewer. Obviously, as a director, as, a, as an editor, you understand what he's saying. But, and then similarly, as he, you know, towards the end of his career and then certainly in recent years, he, he's slurring more. And I think even though, I mean, I spoke to him about, about it and he was like, no, no, that's not connected to boxing. I, I, the boxing hasn't had any physical impact on me. But, you know, I can hear it. Most people talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Jackie mentions it. So, yeah, it was a tricky one. I didn't want to patronize him by adding subtitles. I could hear what he's saying pretty clearly, but I'm very familiar with what he's saying. And, I'm very, and obviously I'm familiar with the questions I was asking. And right. so the more we talked about it as a team, I was like, well, 
I think it's okay to put put in there. In some ways, I think it's poignant because boxing does take a toll on people. Yeah. Sometimes it's a financial toll. Sometimes it devastates them in different ways. I mean, it's, you know, like we say at the beginning of the first episode, you know, I think even Bud Schulberg, who was boxing, had a love-hate relationship with it. And mm-hmm. every single person who we interviewed, um, I sat down. The first question I asked them was like, okay, let's put boxing, give boxing its day in court, you know, people love it they think it's the greatest sport and some people think it's it should be banned so what's your opinion and i was amazed at the honesty of every single person we met because you know they're all people who've lived their life by boxing it means everything to them and not a single one of them didn't admit that it could be damaging they didn't admit some of the problems didn't admit you know or they they admit they talked about the the ambivalence they still had you know and then but in the balance they say yeah but I still love it, you know, yeah. but I think everyone re- acknowledges it's complicated, which I re- I, I thought was very, it was, was admirable and you yeah. don't get it in many sports probably. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wanted to talk about a couple more of the people that you, you, you interviewed. And one of them is, is the, the one guy out of the four we haven't really talked about is Roberto. And um, I've talked to him just a couple of times, interviewed him a couple of times. And the first time I did, I was a little bit nervous because of course he had this reputation of being such a badass as a fighter. And I was, very pleasantly surprised to find out that in his dotage, he's an incredibly agreeable, nice guy. And I feel that that comes across in the documentary. Like he chuckles away at his own reminiscence more than anybody else. Um, and with, I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't had a chance to see it, but he's also responsible for what, for me, was the one laugh out loud moment of the series when he's describing his preparation for the Tommy Hearns fight <laughs> and what was going through his head afterwards. But I, I, I really got a sense out of all the major characters that he seems to me to be the one who is most at ease with who he is and how his career panned out. And, and I'm wondering if that was your impression as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think he's someone who doesn't live in the past. Like he's happy to recount anything you want him to, but he lives very much in the moment. And um, yeah, it was just, it was a joy to hang out with him, like you say. There's always a bit of a trepidation when you're going into and sitting down with anyone. And we got, he mm. gave, he was very generous with his, his time. And, you know, people had said that about him, that it's like back in the day, you had to be careful around him mm. and he had this ferocious thing. But I think, I mean, obviously, well, it certainly wasn't an act in, in the ring. But right. I think outside, you see, there's a lot of footage of him and he's a very sweet kid. Mm. You know, he's kind of, he, he's literally been taken off the streets and thrown into this crazy world. Um, he was, you know, he was wonderful with us. But I, I, I think it's funny, you're right, there's a lot of regret in the other three yeah. about mistakes they made, about fights that didn't go their way. And in him, he just doesn't care. He just really doesn't <laughs> exactly. care. And it's amazing. <laughs> and I, the only person I can really compare him to is when we were doing the Oasis project was Liam Gallagher, because he's someone, again, who lives in the moment and somehow com- is very comfortable with having two completely contradictory thoughts almost simultaneously he can say that was the greatest moment of my life i hated it i love that guy I hate him. You know, and it doesn't it's the same he means both of them equally and uh yeah no it was it was it was good i mean he came over and with his family and we were sitting there um you know in a, in a sound studio in central london and then i would take him around and he he you know he quit i mean talking about how these guys never know when when it's time to bow out he only quit after a, a near fatal car accident in Argentina mm, right. and he still never bothered to get himself properly like sorted out afterwards. So he's, he was going in for a hip operation. So he used me as a human crutch for two days and we would just walk <laughs> around the Thames and up and down the South Bank and he would just literally just lean on me and <laughs> wow. then tell me filthy scurrilous stories and laugh like a madman. He was absolutely brilliant. That was a, a joy. 
Um, the the other guy talking head that I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, is Teddy Atlas. Um, Teddy's kind of a polarizing figure in the boxing community, but he was outstanding. I thought during during this, and I'm curious, did you get all of that stuff from Teddy? Uh, in one interview, and it also felt as if this might have been one of those situations where sometimes you're interviewing somebody, and as they're talking, you're sitting there thinking, holy crap, I can't believe I'm getting this. This is amazing stuff. And his stuff I thought was so good, I wondered if that was one of those situations. A hundred percent. You completely nailed it. It's really uh, it's amazing that you said that, because, yeah, Teddy came in as one of many people we were seeing on day. Obviously, he has he has this, this in, my, in my mind, the way I know him in the UK, he has this great reputation. He's obviously... He was there. He was there, connected to Tyson, which is how I normally think of him. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, as a commentator and as a trainer, trainer of, of other great fighters. But I, I, um, he came in just, you know, as one of we. I think we met Jackie that morning. Then Teddy came in. Then we had someone else. So each person in, very strictly for sixty minutes. Mm-hmm. And he came in, and I really had brought him in more just to talk about the father-son relationship between trainers and their fighters. Um, that was the brief. And he, you know, he was very gracious about it because his daughter had had a, a, a child, I think a first child the day before. Mm. And so he was kind of sleep deprived and was like, look, you know, we have this family thing, but okay, fine, I'll come in, I'll give you an hour. And he was so wonderful. And at the end, I, I was getting, he was so good. that I was like, oh my God, I need to, I need to cancel everyone else for the day and just sit here with him. And so I just said at the end, I was like, look, I, I really feel, I, I started to open it out and ask him about boxing in general. And he was brilliant. And, and then suddenly I was like, oh, right, we've got to finish now. Someone else has just walked in. And I thought, like, this is such a, this is a missed opportunity, really. Um, I said, is there any chance you come back and we could do another session? He was like, well, I normally just do it in one if it's okay with you. And then we start talking about, he has this incredible charity that he runs. Um, and then we started talking about coming over and doing something with that. And then he said, well, now, okay, let's, let's think about it. I enjoyed it. And then I think it was really a couple of months later, I was back in the States and he said, well, I'd prefer it if you came over to my house. I think he thought it was a five minute top up for the missing question. <laughs> we, finished, we finished six and a half hours later. Wow. wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. And each point I was like, do you want a break? Do you want to? He's like, no, no, we're okay. We're okay. We're okay. And he just kept saying, no, you need to get it. And we carried on. And the only reason we stopped at the end was because the sound man's bless him. The sound man's girlfriend dumped him via phone because it was, I didn't, hadn't realized it was her birthday. And he was oh like, God. you told me this was going to be two hours. We're here. It's almost seven. I was like, oh, God, I'm so sorry to have stopped. Mm-hmm. So that was the only reason. Otherwise, I'd probably still be interviewing. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing was, as soon as we got back to the edit suite, the four editors all began to squabble and fight each other, but like viciously to try and get the best Teddy quotes. Oh, right. And the guy who won, Ian, was like, oh, no, I'm having Teddy for my episode. And he, <laughs> he used it to open up, but he did such a good job. I was like, well, maybe then Teddy is a kind of narrator of sorts. Mm. You can all have Teddy. It's fine. <laughs> but start, start him at the beginning and end of each episode. And that seems mm. to work well. Um, so, so it's interesting that you said you came into this not as an established huge boxing fan, only somewhat familiar with the, the fights and fighters. Going through it all, did you develop, do you have a personal favorite fight from the Four Kings era or, or was there one fight that was particularly enjoyable for you to to document and put together? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question because at the same thing, like favorite fights and favorite fighters as well. That was the other thing that we had within our team. You know, mm-hmm. you would you would find out some kind of story or you'd be watching a piece of footage and you go, oh God, it's, you know, it's really, it's Marvin. This thing is all about Marvin. It's Marvin is the the heart of this. And then, two days later you're like no no it's really about tommy and then you go back and move shifting and then and then you go oh no duran's 
Joanne's our favorite. So we, it would constantly keep on shifting. And, and similarly with the fights, you know, I think each time you learn something new about those fights, they reveal, reveal themselves endlessly. You know, these fights pretty short compared to, I mean, you know, we're talking about these many decades later mm. and yet they're still, we're still finding out things about them. So, yeah, I mean, I think if I, if you put a gun to my head and asked me which one I had to choose, if I couldn't have any of the others, I probably would say the first Leonard Hearns fight mm-hmm. just because it's so, it's so engrossing and it's so, it, the, the sand is constantly shifting under their feet and every five seconds you're like, well, it's clearly going to go this way and it turns a different direction. And when you sit and watch the whole thing in one go, I mean, obviously we've, we approximate it and we try and capture it and the essence of it. But it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. You can go back and watch it 10 times and think you've seen something different. Mm. So I think that would probably be the same. And, and the same with our, the fighters. I mean, it's a bit like having to choose between your kids. I think they're so, <laughs> yeah. the one thing we wanted to try and do is, you know, show them in the round, show their complexity and show that, yes, they were heroes, but you know, they had their, their down times. They had, had their moral ambiguity in, in some of the actions they, they took. And that, those, that's, Hopefully that's that's all captured in there somewhere. Yeah. Right before we started recording, uh, you mentioned that you have two kids. I will not force you to uh, choose one. <laughs> I'm sure you have a favorite, but I won't make you declare uh, during the podcast which one it is. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> For the final question, I wanted to go back to something that you touched on earlier, and, and that is the moral ambiguity of boxing. Um, and, you know, I personally think that Anyone who is professionally involved in boxing in any way and isn't in some way morally conflicted about that is doing something wrong, right? But I also, my personal feeling has always been that there's a reason why it's traditionally attracted the best writing and the best movie making. And that's because the characters and the stories all seem to be almost uniquely compelling. And, and, and I'm very curious, you know, you mentioned that you, you've done documentaries about Guantanamo Bay, about the Gallagher brothers, Ian Dury, all kinds of stuff. And with all that background, I wonder if that's a feeling that you share uh, now, having been involved and in, in doing this documentary on boxing, and also if you have any feelings now about boxing that maybe you didn't have going into this. Yeah, I think I admire it more than I did, to be honest. I think I, I, that world, I, I love it more than I did going in. I felt, you know, of course, I can see the attraction originally, but there's that the brutality of it was something that I found sometimes I find sometimes hard to stomach, you know, like mm. a lot of people. Um, but then the artistry behind it and the stories behind it and the, the passion behind it, I think is something that's undeniable. So, yeah, I think, and, and actually, obviously the, the moral ambiguity of it is something that as someone who spends my life telling stories and retelling stories and so on, I think it's something that is, is so engrossing. And I, I felt like as long as we acknowledged it, um, especially in the first episode, then I felt that we were okay, you know, and, and the great thing is, our contributors all allowed us to, to explore that. It mm. wasn't like there were anyone who said they go, no, no, you know, this this interview's over. The moment I started questioning, well, you know, what what's what's the what's the purpose of boxing? Why do right. people box? Why do people fight? And so we tried an experiment out in the first episode quite early on, where I said, well, if we can squeeze all the information into the first fifty minutes, then maybe we can have five minutes at the end where we just explore why we're violent as a species why mm. we fight why do people do this why mm. why why are we even telling this story and we tried it out and i was like i can almost guarantee that you know our our execs are going to come in not having worked with showtime before they're going to come in and say look what are you doing this is like you can't suddenly disappear from the narrative for 10 minutes five minutes at the end of the first episode and they're like we love it that's the best bit keep that make more <laughs> of that you know which is great and and again i don't know if that would happen in the uk but it was mm. it was wonderful to be given that opportunity just to to allow a few of our contributors in our boxes to talk about why why it is that we are so horrible to each other <laughs> and, why, and 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 what it tells us about ourselves and, and then but also 
you know, I think like you said, it's it's that idea of some, one person, in this case, like one man walks into a ring and faces an opponent. That tells you everything about that person. And it tells mm-hmm. you everything about who we are as human beings. You know, I think you can then extrapolate into why do we, you know, why does anything happen in society? I mm-hmm. think that's that's why the ring ends up being a metaphor. I don't think it's too much to say that it really does tell you about humanity in general. Yeah. Matt, again, I think you did an absolutely fantastic job with this. It's, Thank you. it's compelling viewing. Like Eric said at the top, I can't wait until Showtime viewers get an opportunity to see this for themselves. Uh, I, I think it's a marvelous piece of work and uh, pun intended. And uh, <laughs> congratulations. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's wrap up the show with the top five list. Uh, I stalled for a week with our cameo game. Now it's time to give you an assignment for next week. Okay. I contemplated doing something for Kings related. That would have made a lot of sense. Um, but I won't. I'll leave the door open for you to maybe go that route with me in two weeks. It'll still be uh, timely and relevant then. Um, Instead, because it will officially be the month of June by the time people hear this, and June is traditionally International Boxing Hall of Fame Induction Month, but there's no induction ceremony this June. So uh, instead, uh, we'll fill one millionth of one percent of that void by me assigning you a Hall of Fame related list. Uh, And it's a very in the Kieran Mulvaney wheelhouse list. Here it is. As you know all too well, your favorite fighter, Miguel Cotto, who was on the very first fight card you attended, Mm -hmm. did not get in on his first ballot. Uh, Mayweather, Klitschko, and Ward are going in, and Cotto presumably finished fourth. He'll be back on the ballot next year. Your assignment, Kieran, is to count down the top five Miguel Cotto fights that reveal his greatness, that you'd show to someone unfamiliar to convince them Cotto should get their vote for the Hall of Fame. Basically, it's Cotto's five greatest performances. Um, I'm just giving it a little extra framework, a little extra context with the Hall of Fame bit. Um, so, you know, I, I could see that you might have some tough decisions to make here, but this should be a zero research assignment for you. Uh, <laughs> you might choose to watch some fights just for the hell of it, but there's nothing here you haven't seen already uh, and don't already know all about. So hopefully this is both a fun assignment for you and one that requires minimal prep work, a win-win. The the struggle's going to be limiting it to five. Mm-hmm. I mean, 47 pro fights Miguel Cotto has. And... <laughs> if you want to rank them all from one to 47, <laughs> be my guest. Don't put it beyond me. <laughs> This is, I, I don't know what I have done to, whether this is just because you're just so incredibly busy packing up your house that you can't <laughs> think of anything more challenging or you've decided I need, I need a nice little boost this week, but thank you very much. Ha- have you heard the phrase pay it forward, Kieran? <laughs> I'm giving you an easy assignment because I know how busy I'm going to be the rest of June. I'm hoping that uh, this will inspire you to give me a very easy no prep uh, assignment two weeks from now. All I can say in advance is that Kira Mulvaney is grateful to Eric Raskin for the list <laughs> that Eric Raskin has given to Kira Mulvaney to talk about Miguel Cotto, and Kira Mulvaney may well consider that in future. Excellent. And Kieran Mulvaney will be wearing his uh, pink Crocs for the next seven days as he prepares this list, I assume. Will be in the future tense, he says. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're not on video. You can't show me your feet. But... <laughs> exactly. All right. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks again to our guest, Matt Whitecross, who's as good a guest as he is a director, actually. Uh, that was a lot of fun having him on there. Uh, a reminder. Uh, that The Kings premieres Sunday, June 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on Showtime. And, of course, will be available 
on demand for Showtime subscribers. We'll begin dropping those bonus podcasts exploring each episode of The Kings next week. Well, on our regular podcast, we will be back next week with our thoughts on the Mayweather poll card and much more. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.